And so it comes to this. <laughs> well, you'll see some very familiar images uh, uh, from, the, from the first three presentations uh, in this. There will be no Napoleon, no Louis says no uh, George Washington. Uh, but there will be a lot of pictures of other kinds of people. Um, about my title, uh, you may be wondering about it. I have no idea what it means. When I, when I uh, sat down to write the paper and pulled out the abstract, uh, I was baffled. <laughs> so, uh, let me begin with an image of Philadelphia's first Presbyterian church. You can always tell who watches too much TV when they put the clicker toward the screen. Then toward, um, begin with an image of Philadelphia's first Presbyterian church. It was built in 1793 and 94, attributed to the painter John Crumble, of whom you've heard several times over the past couple of days. Um, I start with it because two of Philadelphia's most important early Republican era urban documents intersect in this building. Um, the first from which this view is taken uh, is a, a document uh, you've already heard heard of, uh, William and Thomas Burgess, City of Philadelphia, published in 1800, uh, reissued in several later editions over the next three decades. The second is Elizabeth Sandwith Drinker's diary. Um, Drinker began keeping her diary at the time of her marriage in 1758, and she kept it, uh, recorded her thoughts and, and activities in it almost daily, her last entry being made the evening before she died in 1807. So basically it's a, a record of almost 40 years of, of daily life in Philadelphia. These are both, I guess you would call them canonical documents in Philadelphia, uh, to Philadelphia historians. They present, present very strikingly different views of the city um, and very rarely, if ever, are they considered together. So my question is, can they be usefully juxtaposed? Brinker recorded her first view of this Presbyterian church in her diary shortly before the birch drawings were made, but over two years after it was built. In fact, Brinker described her first experiences of at least three others of the sites recorded by the Birches. Uh, the, the first bank of the United States, the Bank of Pennsylvania, which you you have just heard uh, the Shakespeare buildings in the lower left. And she mentioned the Center Square Waterworks, which she said she heard was very beautiful, but expected she would never see. Um, so let's start with the birch prints. In what sense can they be understood as political portraits? They're commonly read as relatively straightforward documents of the appearance of Philadelphia at the end of the 18th century. That's certainly how they were presented by the artists. Uh, in the preface to their collection of prints, they wrote, the street scenes are all accurate as they now stand. And they, they based this claim on the fact that they were, the, the drawings were made on site. William Birch, in his autobiography, um, stressed that he had instructed his son Thomas in making the field drawings, by which I take him to mean that he told the young man where to stand and what to include. From these drawings made by Thomas, the engravings were made, although you can see differences between the, the final images and, and the, the surviving field drawings. Nevertheless, um, despite these, these small variations, 
people have used these as, as historical documents. By using the print and, and cadastral maps, for example, Luan de Kunzo was able in 1983 to identify and, and trace the ownership of all the houses seen in this image of High Street below, uh, east of, uh, below meaning east of 9th Street. The view of the Presbyterian Church was taken from the northwest, looking east along what was then called High Street, it's now Market Street in, in the major east-west street in Center City, Philadelphia, looking toward the Delaware River. The church has obviously been inserted into a row of private houses. The details of the, of the houses suggest that most were built in the middle of the century. But they, by, the, by the time they were recorded here, they'd been altered by the addition of shop fronts, which were a new feature in Anglo -American, the Anglo-American world and certainly in, in, in Philadelphia in the last decade and a half of the 18th century. This alteration is understandable since they face on, along the left of the image the long open shed of the High Street Market with its meat hooks hanging from tie beams. The juxtaposition of houses, market, and monumental church seems jarring until we place the prints into a larger visual and textual context. The prints should be connected, I think, on one hand. This is a, a context which uh, is not usually mentioned, uh, uh, just as I, I was struck. In, in the papers we've heard so far that portraits were not mentioned in the context of written biographies. Um, similarly, uh, or autobiographies, similarly, um, it seems to me the print should be connected with a genre called Stranger's Guides. Stranger's Guides were compendia of sites to be seen by strangers, meaning visitors, of useful information for visitors, and impressive statistics that would uh, that would uh, give you a favorable impression of the city. These were first published, the American versions of these were first published about the time the Birches were working. Uh, the first one I know of in Philadelphia is James Meese's uh, tellingly entitled volume called The Picture of Philadelphia from 1811. Stranger's Guides offered very artfully constructed descriptions of the city, and they in turn are linked to the tradition that that Jeff Cohen talked about of the European tradition of vedute or views, um, stylized images that conveyed the illusion of realism by emphasizing the perspective of a single viewer on an urban scene or a monumental building. Um, in the 18th and, and early 19th centuries, the economic ascendancy of Northern Europe sent travelers, um, people who might now be called cultural tourists, scattering all over the world, but particularly to southern Europe and to European colonies and dependencies. Some of these travelers, such as Thomas Daniel, William Daniel, Edward Orm in India, uh, David Roberts in the Levant, produced visual images based on the Veduta tradition. From this point of view, we can read the, the birch prints as Veduta, um, as as Jeff suggested. And I would call your attention in, in the, the Daniel print to um, this side of the road where you see indigenous people, indigenous animals, indigenous activities, uh, whereas on the far side of the road are the new, new palaces of British, uh, British rulers of Calcutta um, that, that Roberts means to illustrate. 
Um, and, and I'll come back to this point later, later in the talk. But works such as, as Mises' Picture of Philadelphia and the Burgess' City of Philadelphia um, partook as well of a newer version of this tradition of Vedute, um, the celebration of metropolitan improvements. Uh, the term improvement was first used in this sense in mid-18th century London. It came to be applied uh, to the sporadic public and private projects to rebuild and aggrandize burgeoning European and later North American commercial cities of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. It was associated particularly closely with the projects of development uh, and redevelopment in the West End of London, initiated in 1806 by the Prince of Wales, and illustrated in a volume called Metropolitan Improvements, published in 1827 by Thomas Hosmer Shepherd and James Elms. But by the time that Shepherd and Elms published their book from which I take that phrase, the tradition of images of metropolitan improvements in the generic sense was half a, half a century old. And one of the things that I would call your attention to here is that in the metropolitan improvements images, they tend to show the building in isolation um, without much of its context. And that's, that's one difference from, from the birch prints. Um, but what these strangers guys, the, the, the textual guides, the, the vedute, um, do is edit the sprawling Euro-American cities of the decades around 1800 to highlight their new monuments. This is a process so drastic that it tends, tended to reduce every place to a kind of standardized caricature. If you've read many stranger's guides, you know that it's sometimes hard to keep track of which city you're reading about. And that's often true, uh, in essence, with the, with the prints as well. And it's also true that there was an implicit narrative in most of these. Um, for example, the Birch prints were offered as a story of the triumph of commerce and republicanism in the Quaker city. In the preface, the Birches described their work as a memorial of Philadelphia's progress for the first century. They included a, a few historic monuments to serve as data points against which growth and progress could be mentioned. So the frontispiece showed the tree under which William Penn was believed to have signed his treaty with the local Native Americans in the late 17th century. Um, this treaty oak was part of a larger image that, in their description, represents a busy preparation for commerce. And the final image, as they, they call your attention to, the final engraving depicts the construction of a warship to protect commerce, uh, but with a glimpse of another ancient Philadelphia landmark, the hundred-year-old Swedish church in the background. So the birch prints constitute, as a collection, a portrait of progress. Uh, when we go back to the, the image of the, of the uh, Presbyterian church, uh, the, uh, the, the residences, the original buildings along the street, have been disrupted by commerce, uh, represented both by the shop fronts that were inserted into them and by the market house that was built across from them. Uh, 30 years after these prints, the historian John Fanning Watson, who was the first uh, real historian of the city, described the march of businesses out High Street as blocks of fine houses, he said, were no sooner put up than they were converted to commercial purposes, with the fashionable being constantly displaced farther and farther west. Of course, the fashionable were the people who were doing these conversions, um, profiting from them. 
But what the Presbyterian Church in this, this scene promises is that this economic activity will ultimately produce something much more refined, something more akin to the monuments found in other great cities. Well, this was a kind of, this was very much an illusory climax of the story, uh, as Jeff suggested to you. Uh, if you were to go to London, many, uh, a good number of the monuments illustrated in, in metropolitan improvements survive to be seen today, but most, many of the new monuments in the city of Philadelphia were gone within a generation, and almost all of them are gone by the middle of the 19th century. The Presbyterian Church that we see here was replaced in 1822, less than 30 years after it was constructed, replaced by a new building designed by Elms' student, John Haviland. So one, one uh, kind of easy reading of the Birch Prince is that they're boosterish portraits. Uh, uh, people in a small city trying to show uh, that they're, they really can play with the big boys. Um, but they're, they're at the same time political portraits. That is, they represent a vision of what we might call conservative Republican space. Um, Republican space was founded in a desire to speak, to build, and we might say to will human selves and urban space into a single, living, self-positive Republican I am based on their shared physicality. In this respect, it's significant that the views of Philadelphia offers us, following our glimpse of the commercial waterfront, a map of Philadelphia. It shows a gridded plan to which Republican thinkers attach great powers to mold Republican society and Republican personhood. In their eyes, it offered maximum accessibility and the freedom of movement. It permitted the articulated but not predetermined development of private property within a flexible public armature. The, the difference between the formal, completely imagined grid that we see here and its partially built up space indicated by the darkened areas, uh, in a sense spoke to a faith in the grid's magical powers to bring the new order to completion. But th there's more to it than this. This grid that you see, this map that you see, uh, is confined to the corporate limits of Philadelphia. At the top of the map, you see the new seal of the city, which was adopted in your, uh, a decade earlier. The left figure also holds, uh, holds a scroll con containing, illustrating Philadelphia's grid. Um, but this is not, in fact, as you saw earlier, what the footprint of Philadelphia looked like when the birch prints were, were issued. It looked more like this. The birch map was restricted to the original grid and they said the scenery confined within the limits of the city um, because this is Penn's grid. Um, and in the early 19th century, the revival, the restoration of Penn's vision for the city became a rallying cry for those who uh, demanded urban reform. <coughs> for those, that is, who wanted metropolitan improvement. Although the, the birches didn't plot the location of the illustrated sites on their map, they made it possible to do so. Almost all the labels tell us where the building stands on the grid. This, for example, is the house intended for the President of the United States in 9th Street. So where does Elizabeth Drinker fit into this story? Drinker was the wife of one of Philadelphia's 
wealthiest Quaker merchants. She presented herself to her contemporaries as a woman whose chief happiness consisted in the discharge of her domestic duties, according to her obituary. As a young woman, Drinker lived an active social life, but as she grew older, she preferred to stick close to home, to the home on 2nd Street at the corner of Drinker's Alley between Arch and Race Streets. Um, that's not her home. Uh, the red star you see toward the top of the map, that she occupied for most of her married life. Looking back over the diary she had kept for over 40 years, Drinker noted that in her youth, it was not often that she wrote, stayed at home all day, it would occur so often now that as a rarity, I might say, went abroad today. Drinker proudly recorded her seclusion in her diary, have not been over the door sill since last first day morning. I have not been over our door sill for upwards of nine weeks, and but twice this four months. So in this classic, what's called an American urban history, Walking City, which was small enough that we often assume that everybody knew everything and almost everyone, Drinker had remarkably little first-hand visual or kinetic experience, even of its major streets and monuments. On one occasion, she noted a visit to a shop on 2nd Street behind her house, a business that I had not been in for several years before. One evening, she took a walk to the end of Penn Street, two blocks from her home, but the scene was new to me. Even her children's houses, a few blocks away, were beyond her normal range. After a visit to her daughter Sally's house, Drinker wrote that it was upwards of two years since she had last done so. Burgess monuments were as novel to Drinker as they would have been to a newcomer to Philadelphia. On the evening of, of, uh, of uh, well, on an evening in 1795, I saw for the first time Cook's grand edifice and the new Presbyterian meeting house, built within a year, um, uh, built within a year or two on the same block as Cook's building, the two green green circles you see here, um, and had been finished a year earlier. Uh, notice that they are a block and a half from her house. <laughs> Similarly, walking home from her daughter's house, walked through Dock Street uh, and saw the new bank in 3rd Street, new to me as I have not seen it before, although it was also two years old. In short, I stay much at home and my business I mind, Drinker wrote in a poem. She criticized her daughter and other women who ventured out on a cold day but she said, doubtless there are many other gossips going to and fro like themselves. Uh, actually, the image of gossip, meaning oral knowledge of the city, uh, oral knowledge circulating through the city around Drinker is an apt one for the world she inhabited. It was an alternate urban landscape, one that worked through her ears. Her mental map of the city was not gridded, but concentric. Hers was not the articulated landscape of private citizens in public that the Burgess depicted, but one centered on her own person. Firmly rooted at 2nd Street in Rinker's Alley, she moved through a detailed and busy in indoor landscape, complaining, for example, complaining bitterly when she was confined to her chamber, and at the same time was an engaged citizen of a lively urban society that she knew through her ears. She took in everything that she heard, and then she sent children and servants to find out what she could not tell by listening. I sent Peter to know. I sent to know. She knew of a remarkable range of disasters and other events, and recorded their nature and locations in her diary. 
The difference was that she participated from the refuge of her house. Her spatial separation from her fellow citizens was as great as one could imagine in a city as late, in such a city as late 18th century Philadelphia. So this leads us to another intersection, or probably I should say lack of intersection, with the Birch Prince. For Drinker's oral landscape was one of constant near chaotic activity. The streets were scenes of unrelenting individual and collective commotion. A man singing and playing the violin on her corner. Boys burning barrels of tar on her corner, even though it is not yet the election. And above all, processions of all sorts, many of them rowdy. This day at 12 o'clock, the young men in the city assembled at the merchant's coffee house, from whence they marched in a body, attached by an immense con attended by an immense concourse of their fellow citizens to the house of the President of the United States. It is said there were upwards of 1,200. Or a Negro bearing past our door going uptown in different order from any I had before seen. They sang aloud, psalms I suppose, in a very loud and discordant voice. A large concourse followed. So this brings us back to the, to the Birch Prince. Modern <coughs> scholars of Birch Prince frequently describe them as full of street life. Art historians have seen these vignettes as the product of a burgeoning picturesque visual aesthetic and a good-humored, democratically-minded appreciation of the urban diversity of early national Philadelphia. But three things strike one um, on closer examination. First, the crowded, action-filled, noisy streets that Drinker and many others described are absent from most of the Birch Prince. The inhabitants of Birch's Philadelphia move about in small, private groups, interacting very little with others. The only procession we see is the funeral, decorous funeral procession of George Washington, which passes between two market houses in a scene added to the plate after Washington's death. The market scenes are particularly striking in this regard. As anyone who has been to an open-air market realizes, they can be confusing and overwhelming experiences at the best of times. At Philadelphia's 2nd Street, or, or, or New Market, neighbors complained in 1805 that on Saturday nights, the butcher boys, dissipated men, and idle women collect, and the market during the whole night is the scene of every species of riot and debauchery. The people on each side of the street are not only molested by their wicked and vulgar noise, but even are presented, prevented from sleeping. Second, um, we are constantly struck by the difference between, the contrast between the Birch views of Philadelphia and those of many of their contemporaries. As we've heard, for example, the city, city center square was the site of the city's waterworks pumping station, but it was also an active setting for partisan political celebrations, which John Lewis Crimmel chose to illustrate. Um, Fourth of July celebrations were held on Center Square and at other places because they were viewed as partisan political celebrations. If you were conservative uh, American in the early 19th century, uh, Fourth of July celebrations were sort of subversive uh, uh, celebrations, so they were not allowed to be held at Independence Hall. Um, so it was it was an active partisan setting for partisan political celebrations which John Lewis Crimmel chose to illustrate. The Birches showed it as a place of solitary leisure. 
Similarly, the Burgess depicted an isolated state, state house, uh, meaning Independence Hall, on a quiet Chestnut Street, quiet Chestnut Street, while criminals showed the building on a raucous election day. This was a conscious and pointed decision. Remember that I called your attention to the various figures in Thomas Daniel's view of the new buildings in late 18th century Calcutta. They were there for more than picturesque interest. Diane Harris showed in her study of 18th century Lombard Vedute, um, as she showed, these vignettes are important commentary. The, you can see them as marginalia or annotations on the main subject of the image. Just as the grid separates and articulates um, all uses, it separates and articulates all users. Urban views by the Birches and, and, and other conservative artists that were intended to present positive images of the Republican city invariably show the streets and public spaces of even the largest cities relatively empty with people passing by singly or in pairs. This is the way in which the Birch Prince modeled the kind of ideal Republican behavior they thought embodied in the Penn Plan. The Birch view of, the, of, of Upper High Street depicts a tranquil scene with widely spaced single and pair strollers going on about their business without apparent awareness of other pedestrians. Even a street vendor and a troop of horsemen seem decorous and subdued, and the city's busy market house is confined to the distant background. There are several important instances in which, rather than modeling ideal behavior, the bridges illustrate bad behavior. One of these is the image of the Shakespeare building, Cook's Folly that Elizabeth Drinker admired. This striking building, which in fact was a striking failure, um, was meant to house elite shops and genteel residences as a way to fit commerce into the careful order of the grid. In the background, against the shop fronts, two genteel women view the displays. In the foreground are the kinds of commerce and the kinds of people that the Shakespeare buildings were meant to displace. Blacks and lower class whites engage in street commerce of the kinds that advocates of Republican space, conservative Republican space, thought impeded the free operation of the grid. Far from being seen as colorful urbanites, they seem morally and legally suspect to those with more commanding views of the economy, and they were the objects of constant and still continuing efforts to eradicate them. Even more striking is the Birch Jail in Walnut Street. This prison was built in the 1780s and became the site of one of America's first attempts to create new style penitentiaries based on the principles of separation and classification implicit in gridded spaces. The, like the city's gridded plan, street-like corridors provided access to identical 18 by 20 foot cells organized symmetrically around the central block. In these spaces, men and women were separated, offenders were classified or sorted according to the seriousness of their offenses. By the late 18th century, commentators worried about the disproportionate numbers of African Americans incarcerated there. Rather than considering whether this might be attributed to what we would call racial profiling, in which blacks were disproportionately scrutinized or charged with offenses that might not be applied to whites, white observers attributed it to African Americans themselves. The disproportion of blacks to whites leads to a very unfavorable estimate of the moral character of the colored inhabitants of Philadelphia wrote the editor of A Stranger's Guide. Drinker wistfully noted that times is much altered with the black folk. 
One factor to which whites attributed black behavior was their withdrawal from paternal white oversight into black churches and fraternal orders. In 1830, John Fanny Watson famously lamented the change in black behavior since they got those separate churches. In the foreground of the birch image, we see a blacksmith shop purchased by Richard Allen's newly founded African Methodist Episcopal Church in 1794 to use as a meeting place. Um, it's being moved to its new site. The implication is that this racial separation in worship will doom those using the building in the foreground to end up in the building in the background. In this light, the birch prints seem more complex than simple records of Philadelphia life and landscape. And even, or even then, a parable about the growth of a prosperous commercial city. Rather, they constitute a political portrait of a model Republican city of a conservative stripe. The physical organization promoted an ideal of human behavior, human personal and spatial behavior, that constituted sharply with the individual and collective actions recorded in sources such as Elizabeth Frinker's diary. I'm not arguing that the, the latter is more true, but that they make the birch images worthy of more complex uses than as dust jackets for books about Philadelphia history. Thank you.